Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Squeaky Clean listeners, welcome to the 58th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. On today's episode, we're bursting at the seams with content. We're talking with a household name when it comes to energy reporting. As you may have seen on Energy Twitter, there's been quite a bit of conversation taking place recently on the topic of the Southeast Energy Exchange Market. So we're taking a few minutes today to chat with our guest about the proposal, where it stands at FERC, and how it would impact the state of North Carolina and the Southeast. But before we talk with our guest, we've got a few updates to catch you up on. First up, we've got more news on the offshore wind front. The Biden administration recently unveiled plans to lease large portions of the U.S. coastline from the Gulf to the Atlantic and Pacific for offshore wind farms by 2025. In a speech recently, Interior Secretary Deb Howen announced plans for up to seven new offshore lease sales by 2025. Included in that list is an additional area off the coast of North Carolina and South Carolina. This track is known as the Wilmington East Wind Energy Area. Various stakeholders are hoping for an expedited timeline to leasing out these areas to beat the 10-year moratorium on new offshore energy leases along the Atlantic coastline that goes into effect starting July 1st, 2022. Stay tuned for future episodes where we'll provide more updates on this area off the coast of North Carolina and the potential for wind development down the road. In other news, the North Carolina Department of Revenue was dealt a blow recently after the state's top administrative law judge rejected the department's attempt to deny tax credits to a renewable energy investor. This all stems from Intigon National Insurance Company claiming a $1.8 million tax credit for their 2016 investments in renewable energy projects in the state. In 2020, the Department of Revenue disallowed the credit. This is one of many cases in which investors are challenging similar denials from the Department of Revenue across the state. This dispute on tax credits has been ongoing since 2019, with an estimated $500 million on the table in jeopardy. Stay tuned, as it seems this legal battle is far from over. We'll continue to provide the latest on cases taking place throughout North Carolina, as this is a priority issue for many within the North Carolina renewable sector. And for our last update, NCSEA will be hosting the final of its Making Energy Work webinars next week on October 27th, with a legislative recap from this year's long session in a preview of what's to come in future policy conversations here in the state. This webinar is sponsored by Pinegate Renewables and Kairos Government Affairs. To register for the free webinar, visit makingenergywork.com. All right, so there's seemingly endless amount of policy news coming out of North Carolina between the recently passed House Bill 951 to the SEAM proposal at FERC and a deadlock 2-2 ruling. And that last bit is where we'll focus most of our time today. Before we could even catch our breath, after all the headlines from Governor Cooper signing 951, FERC decided to take up a vote on the Southeast Energy Exchange Market that may have big implications for market structure in the Southeast and how the major utilities interact with one another. 
While Seam made a lot of headlines when the news dropped initially out of nowhere in the summer of 2020, it's been somewhat on the back burner as it's made its way through the process at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Well, recently, FERC took up a vote on the proposal, shooting this back up into the headlines. So let's take some time today to talk about what Seam really is, who's involved, and what it would mean if implemented. Clean energy. Energy. To help us dive into this topic is our guest, who's currently a reporter focused on FERC and the power sector on the Politico Energy team. Previously, she spent three years as a reporter at Utility Dive covering a similar beat and has also served as an associate editor at Utility Dive Energy and Utility News. Friends of the pod, please welcome Catherine Morehouse, energy reporter at Politico. Catherine, welcome to the pod. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. So let's just dive right on into it. So the topic of today's conversation is the Southeast Energy Exchange Market. And for a little bit more background for our listeners, can you provide some information on what the Southeast Energy Exchange Market, or otherwise referred to as SEAM, is all about and how the proposal came together? Yeah, so SEAM is essentially uh, kind of an automated way to do what utilities are already doing in the Southeast. Um, you know, in an, in an instance where a utility might want to exchange energy between it and another um, energy provider, another utility, uh, then this would basically automate that process. Whereas before, kind of, I think my understanding is the bilateral contract process was maybe a little bit clunkier. So it's it's an effort to um, be more efficient, um, to to potentially eliminate some some market inefficiencies, including with renewables and with costs. Uh, and it came together completely through utilities, uh, and and I think. The timing of it was certainly something that some stakeholders in the Southeast and North Carolina in particular uh, had kind of flagged for me early on because you all of a sudden had these media reports of, oh, utilities are planning to um, provide the Southeast energy exchange market. And no one knew what this was. When you say market, um, people think, you know, RTO, uh, people think it's a you know, a, a real transmission operator. So, so there was a lot of confusion there. And certainly from some folks in North Carolina who I spoke to, they, they said, you know, we'd been in these conversations with Duke all summer about implement, how to implement uh, Governor Roy Cooper's uh, clean energy goals. And we'd been having these stakeholder conversations and never once in that conversation did this energy exchange market come up. So now we're all a little bit scrambling. We don't know what this means. So certainly, I, I think the timing and, and how it came about is significant. Um, but ultimately, what it is is kind of a proposal for utilities by utilities to to um, make their current processes more efficient. Yeah, and uh, I, I remember that that very well uh, last summer and into last fall. A lot of a lot of stakeholders were concerned that this was a a move by the utilities to sidestep some of those conversations around market reforms that were taking place at the at the state level, like you had mentioned, um, especially here in, in North Carolina. And there are a lot of conversations that are taking place in other states as well. So um, stepping back a little bit, what what are what utilities would be involved in or, or fall under the scope of SEAM here in the southeast? 
Yeah, so I would say the proposal is mostly the brainchild of Southern Company, um, but other utilities that are, there are 15 total utilities involved, um, and that includes Duke Energy, Dominion Energy, Tennessee Valley Authority, Santa Cooper, uh, kind of all the big players in the Southeast. But um, I think I think Southern Company was kind of the biggest uh, um, company behind that, that project. Is there... Is there any sort of um, reason why Southern Company would be kind of the uh, the the initiator of this proposal? Is there any sort of overarching benefit that they would see as a utility here that would help offloading any sort of excess generation? Um, what would be the reason for for Southern helping to bring this proposal forth to other utilities in the Southeast? Yeah, that's a good question. It might it might just be a case of. I've never asked that question directly to Southern. Uh, it might just be a case of, you know, they have this really big footprint uh, and I, I'd imagine they have a pretty collaborative relationship with with other utilities in the region because they have such a big footprint. Uh, I think certainly all utilities involved in this uh, plan see a lot of benefit from, from you know, kind of having this, this automated exchange. I think it would save them money. It would save customers money. I, I think it seems like from the utility perspective to be kind of a win-win all around. Mm. So so late last year, earlier this year, a number of utilities filed the proposal at FERC. Uh, can you provide some updates on what's happened at FERC to date and what that means for the proposal moving forward? Yeah, so the first filing that these 15 utilities sent to FERC, FERC came back and sent them a lengthy list of questions. They they had what was called a deficiency filing and basically really wanted to drill down into wh- what exactly is this proposal? Why does it make the Southeast energy market better? What What is governance going to look like? How transparent are you going to be? They, they had a lot of, I think most, most folks would agree, good questions uh, for the utilities. The utilities came back with their own really comprehensive response. FERC came back with another couple of questions. And then, you know, everything was silent for, I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks, a month or so. Uh, and and actually, I, I, I think given kind of the lengthy back and forth, it seems like this proposal was going to pass based on people I talked to. Uh, and then the, the deadline uh, was coming close and there was no action. And some rumors started uh, that, you know, maybe FERC is deadlocked on this. Maybe the Democrats on the commission in particular um, are, are not a fan of this proposal. Uh, and ultimately, that seems to be what happened there. FERC was deadlocked on this proposal two to two. There are currently two Republicans, two Democrats on the commission. It seems like it's likely that it was the Democrats who voted against this proposal. Uh, so now what happens is this proposal goes into effect automatically, but it doesn't, It it's not, there wasn't an official order filed, which subjects it to some interesting legal uncertainties. Uh, I won't get too into it because it's it's it, it can get a little wonky, but basically uh, what the future of the proposal looks like is with the nomination of DC utility regulator Willie Phillips, who would be the third Democrat on the commission, that would, you know, bring FERC a Democratic majority for the first time in a while. And conceivably they might 
strike down this this proposal on rehearing if it's challenged, which is is likely because there there is some opposition to to the proposal. Int- that's that's really interesting. And so, in the interim, right, we're I guess we're we're still waiting for any sort of challenge to be brought to FERC in regards to uh, where it currently sits and um, that that sort of stalemate, uh, you know, two to two decision on it recently. Is that the case? There, there hasn't been any sort of challenge posed to that recent decision? Yeah, I don't believe there's been a challenge posed yet. Where I would expect a challenge to come would be from uh, renewable energy groups in particular, um, kind of folks who who advocate for uh, more competitive markets and who want to see less utility control over the markets um, because they they believe that having you know more independent solar developers could could save customers costs and and just allow for for more um, choice in in who provides power to to you. Uh, so I would expect those kinds of groups and and other other advocates of competition. Uh, you know there have been several groups that have been pushing for for just RTO expansion generally. And those are also the kind of groups that that opposed this proposal. And I wouldn't be surprised if they issued a challenge. So if a challenge were to be issued and FERC were to strike down the same proposal uh, as it currently exists, are there opportunities for the utilities to come back with a revised proposal or scrap it all together and maybe come back with a new proposal that would look at some sort of market restructuring uh, within the Southeast? Yeah, I think certainly utilities could could come back, I think, with with whatever they want, if they want to try again, if they want to, you know, I, ideally, I think if they wanted to have the proposal passed, they would probably listen very closely to whatever FERC says. But the tough thing right now is we don't know exactly what the Democratic majority thinks about this proposal. We haven't, we're waiting to see what their um, opinion, they haven't issued their opinions yet. And so we haven't seen, you know, where individual commissioners actually fall and and why they might have opposed this. So I think that would give us a lot of clues as to, you know, what the next step for utilities might be. Uh, Certainly what some renewable energy groups have wanted to see is they would like to see FERC have... Uh, host a technical conference or or something similar. Start some sort of process to think about and explore what would it look like to develop an RTO in the southeast. So, so to that point, um, talking about RTOs in the in the southeast, it's important to note that this proposal is different than other existing ISO or RTO markets. How is this different than some of those other kind of well-understood structures throughout the country? Yeah, so there are a lot of different structures, and I, I won't go through all of them, but just a couple of examples is a uh, kind of a more established organized market might have a capacity market, for instance, that that pays for for certain generators to stand by, and this, this wouldn't have that. And I think the biggest thing that mark that a lot of organized markets have in common is they they tend to move some of the control away from the utility and and toward kind of this more central operator who uh, then makes big decisions on regional transmission projects for instance 
or, um, you know, in some instances, some markets have been deregulated, which means that the utilities no longer own the generation, they just own the poles and wires. And so kind of decoupling some of those, um, some of those incentives and some of those investments is, has been, you know, productive for some regions. Uh, so, so there are a lot of different things that a market could look like, but I think at the end of the Day, what it essentially does is it is it brings in that third party to kind of be more of an arbitrator um, and and make those big decisions on a regional level rather than have these kind of state by state, you know, utility decisions. So would moving to that sort of regional structure change or impact the, the generation mix within the southeastern states? Would it lead to more renewables on the grid would it lead to additional natural gas assets or maybe that's too early to tell how it might impact generation? Yeah, I think there's certainly a lot of studies and a lot of um, experts who would point to the transmission benefits of the South of, of an RTO in the Southeast in particular, you know, for example, it's, it, it can be really hard to build these really big regional transmission lines and those regional transmission lines can bring solar power from remote areas to more urban centers. Um, right now it's, uh, there are a lot of studies that that point to you know utility incentives individually don't necessarily align with those bigger bigger regional transmission projects, and so if you were to for example one one thing someone proposed to me the other day actually a former um, commissioner at FERC he he proposed the idea of okay if you have the southeast market that's currently um, that's currently not within an organized market and you join it with SPP or with parts of, of the ERCOT market or what have you, then you could start to create some transmission lines between those, those areas that would allow a greater exchange of energy, a greater flow of energy between those regions. And that is just a more efficient way to deploy in particular, you know, intermittent resources like wind and solar, um, you know, when the, when the, when the wind isn't blowing there, maybe the sun shining there kind of is kind of the idea, I think. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that there are definitely a lot of studies that show that, that having that kind of, um, organization could improve, um, could improve solar in, in the Southeast. I should say that, you know, utilities believe that, that this, um, Southeast energy exchange market would, in itself help uh, with uh, deploying renewables as well. They, they've they pointed to, you know, for example, solar curtailments when um, when there's too much solar and a utility has to, to curtail that solar. This would allow them to maybe more easily pass those extra solar resources onto another utility. It would be a more efficient way to do that. So certainly I think utilities would say that um, having having this market structure goes a long way toward improving renewables in the southeast as well. And that's you know that's a conversation that I know the the North Carolina audience is is very familiar with. We've run into issues especially in the southeast part of the state here uh where we've been somewhat gridlocked uh with the the lack of transmission capacity to continue to add additional solar resources to the grid. Um so you know, bolstering transmission assets is something that I, I think a lot of renewable energy advocates uh, would would welcome. But at the same time, we mentioned a little bit earlier, there are opponents to the proposal. Can you talk a little bit more 
about some of the issues that that opponents might have with seam? Yeah, so I think that the biggest issue that opponents have with seam is they feel like utilities, you know, brought this proposal forward at a time when the Southeast was perhaps becoming conversations were were growing or becoming stronger about building an RTO and people who really want to see an RTO. And that includes, again, a lot of um, the renewable energy industry and, and other advocates as well. People who really want to see an RTO feel like this is kind of utilities undermining that effort and that this will kind of suck the air out of the room. And, um, you know, utilities will point to this and say, well, we made improvements and and other folks will say, OK, well, you could have made bigger improvements if we would have put all of our efforts toward toward this other thing that that we think is actually better for the region. So I think that's the biggest opposition is it's it's less it's less that seem would do anything bad to the region. I, I think that there aren't really fears of of anything that seem would do negatively to, to impact power prices or, or to put fewer renewables on the grid. But I think it's I think it's more a fear of what does this do to the conversation? And and it's more of a fear of what seem isn't and what it what it might be preventing. That's that's really good context, um, especially as as we uh, mentioned a little bit earlier in this conversation as well that you know South Carolina recently passed a study bill looking at what it would mean for the state to join an RTO market. North Carolina has been moving through and recently finished or earlier this year finished a couple of stakeholder processes uh, under the clean energy plan. So there are a lot of uh, conversations happening in parallel, and I, I, I totally agree that that's one of the, the larger concerns that, that we've heard here as well at NCSEA. So I know we just talked about it a little bit um, before, but I, I, I kind of want to wrap up on this note. Where, where does SEAM go from here? What can we expect next um, as, as this conversation continues to unfold over the coming weeks and months? Yeah. What I am really eagerly awaiting is to see what these commissioners thought about SEAM because we, we haven't known for all this time, especially because the commissioners can't comment on ongoing proceedings. So this will be when the commissioners, uh, I've been told there's no deadline, so we don't know exactly when it's coming, but when the commissioners finally file their comments on this proposal, we'll get to see what they actually thought of this proposal. And that will give us really good insight into whether this proposal has a future in the Southeast, uh, as well as, you know, if it doesn't have a future in the Southeast, then, then what's what's next what what might the commission um think of as an alternative and again the biggest folks to uh look to will be will be the democrats because they will have a third vote coming in and presumably this this third democrat would vote in line or at least be aligned on a lot of things with those commissioners so um learning kind of what they think and where they're coming from will be a really big a really big deal as a quick update for our listeners, Commissioner Glick actually issued a statement just this week on his opposition to the SEAM proposal. In this statement, he reaffirmed his belief in RTOs and ISOs as a means of saving customers money, enhancing reliability, and integrating renewable resources more efficiently. However, he shared his concern over transparency and, quote, the potential for exercise of market power manipulation in the Southeast Energy Exchange market, unquote. He also goes on to say that considering the resistance to organized markets in the Southeast, 
the same proposal is a positive step forward. Instead, though, the commissioner urges the region to move towards an organized wholesale electricity market, such as an RTO or ISO, that would further protect customers while reducing rates. We've included a link to the commissioner's full statement in the show notes for this episode. Well, Catherine, I really do appreciate you taking some time to, to chat with me this afternoon about SEAM, what it means for the Southeast, where it currently stands at FERC, and what people can expect for next steps. This is a really insightful conversation, and I know you've been paying really close attention to it. So for those folks uh, who are interested in following the the SEAM saga over the next couple of weeks and months, uh, make sure to give Catherine a follow on Twitter and to read her reporting over at Politico as well. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much, Matt. This has been really fun. My key takeaway from today's episode is the fact that the challenge over the SEAM proposal is actually far from over. As Catherine mentioned in our conversation, procedurally at FERC, should a split decision occur, the filing proceeds as law. However, Biden has nominated Democrat Willie Phillips to serve as the fifth commissioner, who actually participated in a Senate confirmation hearing earlier this week. Should his nomination be confirmed, it's likely that the same proposal will be challenged, leading to a rehearing and a possible 3-2 to two vote in Democrats' favor, opposing Seam. With that being said, there's still a lot more potential action ahead on this topic. Stay tuned, as we'll be closely watching this over the coming weeks and months. And that does it for today's episode. But before you go, we've got another episode of the North Carolina Solar Traveler. Every episode, join us as we travel to each corner of the state to tell you the story of clean energy and the value it brings to our local communities. Along the way, you'll also have the chance to learn a little bit more about each of the communities that call these projects home. So on this week's episode of the North Carolina Solar Traveler, we're headed over to Mecklenburg County and to lead us on this journey is NCSEA's own Energy Program Manager and Duplin County native, Daniel Pate. Welcome back, Squeaksters. Duplin County native and your favorite North Carolina nomad, Daniel Pate here. And thanks for sticking around once again for another edition of The Solar Traveler, where we've been fulfilling your clean energy and wanderlust cravings since, well, 2021. You're in for a treat for this edition of The Solar Traveler as we head to the big city. And not just any city, we are heading to the county with the biggest city in North Carolina. You guessed it right. It's time to explore Mecklenburg County. So grab your travel guides and your walking shoes and let's get to it. (laughs) Mecklenburg is home to the largest city in the state, Charlotte, North Carolina a.k.a. the Queen City, in honor of Queen Charlotte, the wife of King George III during the time of the city's founding. Shout out to all of our NCSEA members in Charlotte, which include, but certainly are not limited to, the city of Charlotte, Mecklenburg County, AECOM, Centralina Regional Council, GNEC Solar, 
PineGate Renewables, and Solterra Partners. In Mecklenburg County, you can find Lake Norman, the U.S. National Whitewater Center, Carowinds, the NASCAR Hall of Fame, the North Carolina Blumenthal Performing Arts Center, and Billy Graham Library. Mecklenburg County is home to 10 Fortune 500 companies, including Bank of America, Lowe's, and Duke Energy. Notable people coming from Mecklenburg County include President James Polk, former U.S. Secretary of Transportation Anthony Fox, R&B singer Anthony Hamilton, and of course, famous professional wrestler Ric Flair. All right, now that we've hit up all the hot tourist spots, let's see what's going on with clean energy in Mecklenburg County. In Mecklenburg County, there are over 2,100 solar PV systems with a total capacity of over 24.5 megawatts. That's enough to power approximately 3,000 Bojangles restaurants. Mecklenburg County has 4,119 registered electric vehicles, including plug-in hybrids. In the city of Charlotte, you can find over 1,760 solar PV systems, with 1,693 of those being residential and 68 being commercial. Charlotte is home to a number of energy efficiency certified buildings, including 298 Energy Star and 449 LEED certified buildings. That's over 97 million square feet of energy efficiency certified space. These stats are thanks to our local government clean energy reports created using NCSEA's Renewable Energy Database. Well, that will do it for now. And as Matt usually shares his main takeaway of each podcast episode, I will today share my main takeaway of this edition of The Solar Traveler. And here it is. We have certainly heard before that Charlotte's got a lot. But now we know specifically that Charlotte's got a lot of watts. Anyway, hope you enjoyed that bit of insight in the episode. Thanks for tagging along and see you next time on the Solar Travel. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 58 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See you all later. <laughs>